Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. My name is Tim Malloy, and today my guest is Eugene Kotlyarenko, director of the new film Spree. Spree, out Friday, has been a little bit misunderstood. It's about a lonely young man named Kurt, who's a rideshare driver for an Uber-like company called Spree, who is played by Stranger Things star Joe Keery. He's desperate for social media followers and becomes a little bit fixated on a comedian named Jesse, played by Sashir Zamata from Saturday Night Live. There's a lot of good casting in this movie, including David Arquette as Kurt's somewhat pathetic DJ dad and SNL's Kyle Mooney as a comedian who's also fixated on Jesse. Also, Misha Barton. I don't think you have to have seen Spree to enjoy this conversation about social media influencers, the state of film criticism, and the state of movies themselves. I try to shut up in these interviews as much as possible and let the filmmakers speak, but this time it turns out I had more to say than usual. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll also check in later this week for our interview with Lily Reinhardt, the star of the new film Chemical Hearts, and the writer-director of Chemical Hearts, Richard Tanney. It's a conversation I really enjoyed, just like this one, with Eugene Kotlyarenko, director of Spree. That's happened one more time. Yep, I hear that, and I love it. Okay, because it's a directional mic, and if I don't use the directional mic, you might hear a baby in the background, and then people will be like, that that sounds weird. What's the baby about? Yes. Well, that's some sort of commentary on the film, too, probably. <laughs> we're, all, we're all babies. We've all infantilized ourselves mm. into... Uh... Yeah, and we've all kind of forgotten how to communicate in a way that's <laughs> comprehensible to each other, right? We're all babbling in a way, right? <laughs> Yes. I, yes, I think exactly. Um, should we just start? Are we started? Sure. Up to you. Uh, cool, cool. Um, I feel like we're already talking, so let's just keep talking. I really like the movie. Thanks very much, Tim. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what you wanted to do with it? Like what the, what the objective was? The objective for me as a filmmaker in general is always just to sort of, you know, make something that I haven't seen before. Um, try to sort of like advance uh, the language of cinema while also making something that is just really entertaining, right? And so I do think that one of the things that we can all share, right, a universalizable experience more or less, is that we wake up in the morning and we kind of look at our phones first thing to see if we got any notifications, any sort of news that could be pertinent to how much people care about us. (laughs) Right, it's the perfect sort of like narcissism, like reflection machine. And it gives us dopamine hits we need to make us feel loved, right? We have the little heart on Instagram, you have the little heart on Twitter. And I felt like this was turning us all into, um, you know, kind of desperate, uh, potentially monstrous beings. And so I thought I would make fun of that and take it to kind of the most horrific place it could go, which is the movie Spree which is someone kind of, you know, so desperate for this attention on these mediated platforms that they would kill for it, right? Yeah, I just want to make your point by saying that right before I jumped on this Zoom call, I noticed that I had one interaction on Twitter, you know, where you see that you have like a one and you don't know what it is. And Mm -hmm. I didn't check it. And I have like a tremendous feeling of anxiety about like what that one thing is. Is it like a retweet? Is it a like? Try to to focus, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, I'm sure here at the end of the day, and no offense to you, your following or the sensational material that you are putting out there or I am putting out there, 
it's right. probably meaningless. It's probably right. irrelevant. But the way that these apps are built is to gamify and yeah. you know brainwash us into believing that any alert, any notification could potentially be life altering because that it's just it's just like a game, you know, all of this sort of it's it's designed that way. And there are a whole generation of people who are younger than us who are born into that and understand their identity and their self-worth through this game um, yeah. that, you know, translates likes and attention into love and, and value. And, um, you know, that's what the movie is sort of like kind of savagely trying to make fun of amongst other things. I think it's also making fun of a bunch of other shit, but um, yeah. that's the main thing. And we've seen that Facebook absolutely rewards divisive content definitely pushes people towards more divisive. If you put in something sort of divisive, it'll push you towards something more divisive. If you say you don't like a Star Wars movie, it will lead you down like crazy alt-right channels or something. And yeah. I'm sure Twitter does the same thing. I mean, in my own experience, it's getting more divided. So I just, I just appreciate anyone who calls that out. I think it's, it, it's not a good reflection of real life. And your movie does a good job of illustrating the extremes that people will go to in order to seem relevant or seem exciting or watchable. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of learned behavior that maybe originates in the sort of sensationalism of, you know, more mainstream media, right? Like the 24-hour news cycle obviously is competitive and it reports sensationalism, right? Yeah. And we have something called clickbait, right? And clickbait is essentially that. It's a sensational headline that will make you fucking go there so you can look at advertising. And yeah. it's not surprising that people would then internalize these things that they're observing in the more, you know, mainstream landscape and then try to, because everyone is also like a brand now, every human being is a sort of corporate entity unto themselves. They would try to emulate the behavior of actual corporate entities by then themselves doing sensational things like, you know, sexual, sexual like display or violence, or just like you said, divisiveness, right? Like extremes allow these sort of, you know, bubbles and pockets of people to sort of like attack or defend you and um it's not like real life you know like what you're saying so yeah. but it, it's slowly becoming a part of the way we interact and behave and um i've seen now that the film is out you know there are some people who don't understand that the characters are written in a satirical way to almost be projections of behaviors that we um used to only engage in virtually, but now more and more engage in IRL. Yeah, if, if I see a movie doesn't have like a stellar score on Rotten Tomatoes, I usually just avoid talking about it. But I feel like your current Rotten Tomato score, which as of this conversation is a 58. No, underscores... actually it's 60. Oh, it got up to 60. Okay. All right. Then they got, they got my positive review. No, just because I, I got an email from the PR right before our call that, hey, we're fresh. Yeah. I kind of wear it as a badge of honor. You know, like yeah. I, woke, I woke up a few days ago, like the Thursday, the day before the movie premiered, to like basically what I would call a legendarily bad pan in the New York Times, just like mm. viciously um, saying the movie was, you know, just filled with like, the most annoying and stupid characters of all time. And I got in the shower and I was like, I should just take that review and swap out the word spree, the title spree for Dr. Strangelove because everything that they said about my movie, you could, if you wanted to, if you thought it was 
horrible to make a joke about nuclear holocaust apply to all the characters in that movie because it's yeah. a critique on the characters and not really like the, the film or whatever. Anyway, so I'm, I'm thinking about that in the shower. Then when I got out of the shower, I'm like, let me just look up the New York Times review of Dr. Strangelove. And while it is a mixed positive review, the last three paragraphs of it are just scathing and I mean, like, why would they make a movie so psychotic full of all the characters being so stupid? And like it, the movie thinks it's funny, but to me, it's just a sick joke with no laughs. And so like, <laughs> it literally almost is verbatim similar to this review of Spree. And then of course I did my little thing where I just grabbed the screen grab of those last three paragraphs, <laughs> completely decontextualized the first three paragraphs, which were basically positive about the craftsmanship and you know certain ideas in the film and put that up there and just did a little subtweet where I'm like, I'm just gonna leave this here. I'm not about to fucking advertise the pan in the New York Times. But um, I'm a little bit skeptical of movies that have like, you know, the certified fresh 80 plus percent you know yeah. because uh it's all corporatism in like a weird way a lot of the reviews in my opinion well i should start by saying i'm pretty far left and i don't mean this is like a right-wing thing but there is a certain amount of i i'm sorry to use their term but virtue signaling that goes into film criticism later where it's like you write a positive review when people are behaving well on screen and you write a negative review when people are behaving poorly on screen on screen but i mean you can make a good movie about terrible people being awful you can make a great movie about it i mean that's american psycho how else do you critique the culture i mean look the history of film criticism is a history of moral grandstanding from the very beginning that's why the only critics we remember are people like james ag or pauline kale or people who are really looking to not just the craft but they're, they're moving beyond just the sort of facile thematic concerns or the characters being good or bad, you know? But in general, by and large, just like everyone thinks, oh, they used to make better movies back then. Like they didn't, you just don't know about the tens of thousands of shitty movies that were made in the history of Hollywood or the history of Italy or the history of France. Um, you also don't know that all the critics used to be fucking dumb too, just like most of them <laughs> are now, no offense to whatever critics. There are obviously some that I like, but like, I mean, look, if you look at like, you know, if you go on Rotten Tomatoes right now, it's and to type in Fight Club or something, right? And you go to top critics, which means those were the critics that were writing for newspapers at the time. You're going to see all splattered green tomatoes. And if you go, and you don't go to top critics, you go to all critics, it has like a 90% rating. Why is that? Because the all critics is comprised of bloggers and shit from the last 15 years after Fight Club has already like had some sort of real response from moviegoers. And so like the tide shifts and people like it. And same thing for Starship Troopers, same thing for, for um, like natural born killers or something. And I'm, I'm not saying those movies aren't flawed and have problems, but they clearly were saying something in a moment when, you know, professional critics were maybe not receptive to the critique, you know? Do we like all the same movies? How do you feel about Silence of the Lambs? Excellent film. <laughs> I'm just trying to get a sense because you just named like three things that I really, really enjoyed. I saw Starship Troopers recently and was just blown away by how much people didn't get that one the first time out. 100%. That is so hardcore critique. Paul Verhoeven is one of my favorite filmmakers because he is very concerned 
with just storytelling, just entertaining people, but pulling the rug out from under them. But his worldview is extremely bleak. Everyone in his films is always trying to exploit or take advantage or betray or, you know, just the other people in the film. And that is inherently a critique of the human experience and also a mirror to things that we might not like about ourselves. And those movies also say a lot. So whether you're talking about, you know, some of his Dutch films, like for instance, to me, Soldier of Orange is one of the greatest critiques of like heroism or wartime valor, because all those people who are in the Dutch underground are bumbling fools who basically against their own ineptitude somehow become heroes. Or you're looking at like Total Recall, which is, you know, probably the best Philip K. Dick adaptation and this sort of, you know, screed against like corporatism and all of the dreams sold to us, you know, as normal people. And it's just like a a great amount of fun and also highly an attack on like identity, an attack on our mind. I don't know. It's like, whatever. I'm not really making sense anymore, but like. (laughs) No, I totally get it. Paul Verhoeven is, is to me, you know, a master of uh, saying a lot in his movies, but mo- but chiefly being concerned with entertaining an audience. Yeah. Have you seen um, You Don't Know Me, the documentary about Showgirls? No, I haven't. Oh, I think you'd really like it. It's a lot about Verhoeven, and we had the director of that movie on here a while ago, and it just did such a good job of explaining that with all of Verhoeven's violent movies, he kind of winks at the audience and says, hey, this is satirical. And Showgirls has some satirical elements that they don't wink at the audience. And because we're so you know, Puritan and scared of anything with sex, we assume that it must be completely sincere and evil and bad or whatever. And so Showgirls gets the worst reviews ever. I mean, I think that's very clearly a satirical and campy film. I think that movie is in a strong tradition of like 1930s showbiz films and early 40s ones like Marlena Dietrich films, films where, you know, someone has to go through like, you know, a sort of uh, uh, odyssey, a journey of coming of age in spite of a cruel, again, a cruel world. I mean, he did something really similar in a TV miniseries in the 70s called Katya Tipple, which is a 19th century adaptation where a young girl goes to Amsterdam from the countryside and is forced to become a prostitute. And, you know, it's a build, that's what it's a buildings Roman, right? Each episode is just like, you know, the cruel fate of our protagonist in a world that is trying to take advantage of her. So, um, I mean, to, to me, all that shit is obvious because I don't try to overanalyze films. I just let the movie talk to me and try to have fun. Um, you know? Yeah. How did you cast the people you cast in Spree? I mean, I'm thinking about like the sort of like influencer type people and then the people who pop up like, yeah, when Misha Barton pops up, someone who's been like a tabloid fixation. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of part of it, right? So there's a very strategic approach there. So the first act of the film, the most important thing to me was sort of like immerse the audience into the idea that this could be happening. This is real. So even though there's some really excellent actors there, like Linus Phillips, Jesslyn Gilsig, and John DeLuca, who play the passengers, um, we really wanted you to feel like, oh, fuck, this is like claustrophobically real, and you'd never doubt it. <laughs> then at the turn of first act, which I'm not going to give away, right, Kurt, with the help of his kind of influencer friend, Bobby, comes to the realization that you know, he needs to up the ante, right? So Bobby says, yeah. you need a real what the fuck moment. And so when we hard cut to Misha Grande and, Fra- uh, sorry, Misha Barton and Frankie Grande and Lala Kent of Vanderpump Rules fame, 
and they're all screaming, what the fuck? Because he's driving like a maniac. I want the audience to be saying, what the fuck are those people doing in this movie? You know? And um, hopefully enough audience members recognize them from their different lanes, right? Because Misha Barton was like a young starlet in Hollywood who did have like this sort of tabloid reputation. And Frankie Grande is on like Disney shows and Ariana Grande's brother and is on VH1. And then Lala Kent is on Vanderpump Rules and she's very popular amongst the reality TV set. And so I just really wanted people to be like, what the hell are these people doing in this movie? Um, so that was sort of like the mentality behind that. And, you know, I met with a bunch of people and they are all such skilled actors. Obviously people know Misha as a skilled actress, um, but um, Frankie and Lala, they're such good improvers and actually all that stuff that they're saying up um, when they're when they're up on the moonroof where they're sticking their heads yeah. out of the moonroof and stuff. That was all stuff I heard them saying off camera in between takes. <laughs> Some of them, I said, you just incorporate that. Let's just go with that. You know, because I knew we'd be cutting between, um, and I threw my like written dialogue out. A totally awesome, totally unforgettable scene that feels like a real moment, like that people will remember, like a real like calling card of 2020, and of oh god, that sounded so like buzzy to say that, but it it did really like feel it, like this is, moment. but like this is where we are right now. It did feel just very much. Like, I'll show my kid this and say, yeah, this is what it was like. This is what it was like when people were all competing for attention. That's good, because I think that's lost in a lot of people. They think it's some sort of parody. It's, it's a satire. So things are, you know, going to be up to 11. But it's not. These caricatures are realer than we think. Um, for that scene specifically, you know, I always thought of the movie as a satire, but obviously to market it and stuff, you have to sell it as a thriller or a horror, and it has those elements. But for that scene specifically, again, not to give stuff away, but I definitely, when you when the characters say, you want us to stick our heads up there? It's like the audience is supposed to be thinking, oh, they're going to get like decapitated or something. And then we play with that several times throughout right. the scene. And that's, of course, ultimately not what happens. But I wanted that, you know, same thing with the freeway chase. I was like, <laughs> when my co-writer Gene and I were writing, I was like, I don't know if we're gonna get the money for this, but we've got to do like some sort of crazy chase because it's a car movie and, you know, we want stuff for the trailer and stuff. And so we were writing it and I was like, well, we should at least, if we're gonna do a chase, might as well have them going in the wrong direction. Um, on oh, the yeah. freeway, oh, you God. know, like, like if you're seeing like To Live and Die in LA, like that's such a thrilling yeah. scene where it goes in the wrong direction. And I said, well, we should up the ante even more. Why don't we just flip the camera upside down like halfway <laughs> through the chase? And so that's what happens there. And, you know, so then your angle on the chase, even though it's backwards and upside down. Um, but yeah, just, you know, trying to play and with those tropes. I feel like you don't get rewarded as a filmmaker when you make something satirical and don't spell out like way over the top, hey, this is satirical. And you don't do that at all. You don't wink at all. You don't like give people any tips. And so then you get these reviews where people don't understand that they're seeing something satirical or they don't understand that it's supposed to be surface level. Well, or... I think what I'm seeing, again, from more like, like established critics who I don't want to say old, but whatever, is that they actually, the main critique is like, the message is too obvious. Like we've seen this millions of times before. And what they don't really pick up on that, if you look on like Letterboxd or like, you know, the teenagers who are really watching the movie right now and I'm blessed that they are. And, you know, we did, I don't know if you know, we did a whole social media in character campaign, Kurt's World no, no. on Instagram <laughs> that has 68,000 followers. And um, <laughs> all these kids engaging with this character and not really even knowing it was a promotion for a movie up until a few days ago. Um, um, they, 
the 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 the, the, the teenagers and the people in the early twenties they completely see all of the nuances that the film is critiquing. Every single line from every single character is a reflection on some pathetic thing that people transparently do online that yeah. has not been savaged properly, definitely not in cinema. <laughs> and so the view, so the reviewers are like, yeah, we get it, social media bad because he's killing for attention. And I'm like, you don't even get the fucking levels going on here. But like someone who actually speaks, you know, the language of being online will find that value and like richness in the film. Yeah. Um, otherwise, what they want is like what you're saying, a Seabiscuit thing, where if you're making a satire, suddenly you have to explicate the satire for them. You need right. to actually dig up all of the hidden stuff that's underneath the obvious message. And I'm not interested in that, because like, what I'm saying is like, I'm just trying to entertain people, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's not broad. It's it's more thinly sliced than that. And you're just going to miss a lot of people who need it to be broad, I guess. I don't yeah, know. I think there's also like an allergy to different registers of comedy. Like, I'm, I'm interested in many different registers of comedy from like, you know, elevated satire to like lowbrow, like body humor or just like, you know, campiness. Like, I love like John Waters and stuff. Oh, yeah. And I feel like if maybe if it's like, you know, if like Pedro Almodovar is doing that or something, although the early Pedro Almodovar films did not have some sort of a critical acclaim or whatever, but if he's doing that, they can see the different registers. Um, also, you know, he has an emotional core in his film that's in his films that are probably a little bit more buried. In Spree, it's probably a little bit more buried. The sort of pathos of the Kurt and the sadness <laughs> of everyone is a little bit more. Yeah. Like, you know, like for instance, like David Arquette. I'll get off my Pedro tangent. I'll just go back to uh, my movie. <laughs> David Arquette, for instance, is an incredibly fun playing, you know, Kurt's father as of a washed up 90s DJ is an incredibly funny and pathetic character that I also find really sad, which yeah. you see out in the wild, these sort of like formerly maybe relevant or interesting people just grasping at, you know, a contemporary form of relevance that they, can, they cannot decipher in their sort of muddled brains. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so um, but there is a sadness, you know. There is a pathos to the whole thing too that yeah. isn't, you know, is there. So, I I have a complete downer question. Um, yeah. I went to UC Santa Barbara, and there's stuff in there that definitely reminds me of the UC Santa Barbara shooter, who's yeah. who I'm not going to name because what a horrible human being. And yeah, is was that an influence at all? So. There's like two just, just the I just mean specifically he did like a video where he comes off as like a cartoon villain and just seems like such a besides He's being not, a mass murderer like a just right, dumbass. That, yeah, that person made a lot of videos. Also, this is something that the film explicitly kind of points out, right? This yeah. idea of we will not say his name, and then you scroll down and it says right. Kurt Kunkel. Like that's right. you know not to give anything <laughs> away, but that you know there's a strategy that the media uses to sort of try to, you know, be responsible towards horrific events. And my yeah. approach to this, because the movie is a takedown of white male mass murderers in America, and this very, you know, alarming um, pattern of spree killers, right? Yeah. Is to say, these people are pathetic, because yeah. all they want, they, even if they're are driven by some sort of like, you know, superficial ideology, at the yeah. end of the day, what they desire is to be at the center of a narrative. 
and they right. want to be the center of attention. And so when you look at this sort of video you're talking about, about the Santa Barbara killer, he believes that he is putting forward his genuine emotions and his genuine frustrations. However, at the same time, he is articulating a script, an emulated, almost cartoon character villain, like you said, cartoon villain, like arch villain behavior that he believes is invisible to his audience, but is in fact <laughs> extremely transparent and extremely pathetic and extremely disturbing and extremely funny to me. And so what I thought is that I should take people like that and completely make fun of them. Kurt Kunkel, the, the you know, protagonist of this film or the main character of this film, is not someone that anybody would ever want to emulate. You know, I mean, yeah. even I'm not even talking about like, oh, the things they're doing in Natural Born Killers is cool. I'm talking about something like, you know, in, in 19 whatever, 81, someone tried to assassinate President Reagan because they wanted to impress Jodie Foster because they wanted to be Travis Bickle. This is yeah. not Travis Bickle. Kurt Kunkel is fucking, um, you know, the king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. It's someone yeah. that you cringe watching at and you would never want to be like, you yeah. know? And um, so it, to me, it was actually a very explicit, you know, sort of goal for this film to do something that the news media can't and that like, you know, when Obama was president, he made some really great speeches about gun control and about mental health care to try to deal with this, you know, problem that we have in America and, and, and do something that an, only an artist can do, which is take these fucking people and make fun of them. And, yeah. and, and make them seem really uncool for anyone else out there who would attempt to do something like that. And so that is definitely one of the considerations and goals of the film. And yes, I've seen all of those videos and I guess I've read many, many manifestos. And yes, I, I can see through the ideological stupidity and underpinning of all of these things to get to the core of the sadness of how desperately these psychotic people want to be at the center of the narrative, just like all of us on social media. It's just, and I, I don't mean to like moralize, but I mean, you don't really need to moralize when somebody's a mass killer, like they're obviously bad, but it's just the fact that these guys are dorks. They're just losers and dorks. And like the fact that you kill a bunch of people doesn't change that, doesn't reverse that. It's like, you're, you're now a loser and a dork who's also a killer. But, but they're approaching the same thing we were talking about earlier on, which is the sensationalism provided by the news media or whatever, and they see that as this sort of like, you know, uh, the, the thing to grab, you know, the ring, the golden ring that they can grab whether they go down or not. And so the proposition of this film is to reveal not only to the rest of the world who wants to vilify them, but to those people who would even consider this, that your mission is flawed. You, your, um, you know, performance is transparent and your ethos is pathetic. You know, and, and, and I think Joe was very sensitive to this characterization and was very, it was able to tease out the sort of, you know, pathos and desperation and psychosis of this type of character. And then I made it, you know, my mission from the moment we started making the movie, writing the movie till the last little final comment that I wrote into the live stream to make it really clear this person is super fucking uncool. Yeah. Oh, so you wrote the comments in the live stream because the comments are one of the funniest parts of the movie. Yeah, I wrote all uh, 7,000 plus <laughs> comments and all the usernames and everything. Yeah. Did you really? Yes, I did. They're all, oh my original, God. they're all original comments written to every single moment in the film. And it took me many, 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 many 
like nights and weekends and hours like beyond belief and it's extremely tedious but also i felt like extremely important on a formal level obviously because i'm trying to do new things with cinema and also just on a commentary level if you stop the movie if you're watching it at home and not in the theater and you stop it at any point those comments will one make total sense to offer different like ideological and political reflections on what's going on in the film and three yeah. sort of present a projection for of the audience's emotions you know yeah. and I, I tried to sort of put a handle on all those things while i was writing them they're really funny and really perceptive and they do a great job of like greek chorus i guess uh, in terms of in, in terms of telling us like how different people are responding to this, it's really, really effective. And it's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, like there are some people, you know, who think that Jesse, the movie really loses it in the stand-up comedy performance because Jesse's standup is too quote unquote woke. Right. And if you stop during that, there are tons of commenters in the, you know, because her whole show <laughs> is live streamed in a very specific, like kind of Hitchcocky and like multiple angle build attention sort of way. Um, yeah. There are multiple commenters who are saying, I hate this woke comedy. Like, what the fuck is she on? Where are the jokes? And her stand-up even foregrounds the fact that she knows she's not making jokes, you know? So, I mean, uh, while on some level they're right, the movie did that intentionally, you know? Yeah, the yeah. movie is, is presenting that as a trend in comedy, like, you know, sort of confessional, observational, woke, almost not necessarily funny comedy. And it's also saying, like, okay, like, I'm uh, like, like, this is what the story needs. And let's also make fun of it. And let's also legitimize. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's a, uh, anyway, satire. It's funny business. Okay, so I'll ask you this. And it's kind of a big question. And there's kind of a big lead up. But one thing I struggle with is I'm disgusted by all of this stuff. I'm disgusted by all of the like performance on social media by all of the I think the same things that you're disgusted by with the narcissism and people wanting validation that they're good people instead of just going out and living your life and being a good person. But I also think that like, I haven't really evolved to be a good person until I'm at the point where I can like forgive that and look past it and just go like, hey, we're all struggling. Everybody's having a difficult time. They're handling it in a not great public way, but they're trying. I should have compassion for even that incredibly annoying person on social media. Um, what is, what is the answer to our our sort of national social media problem? I don't know exactly that I have an answer, Tim. I can make an observation. Um, so I don't think, I think it's definitely an international problem. I think this is like, you know, yeah. officially, I think more than half of the world population has some form of social media account, you know, which means a virtualized identity. And with the frequency and intensity with which we use our smartphones and these apps, um, that virtual identity more and more becomes our actual identity, right? And because we are social beings, because we, when we, when we put the phone in our hand, it becomes our personal space, it becomes us. And then we start getting inundated with pe people communicating with us from all around the world, maybe not even intended for us. And so we have these intrusions upon our personhood and upon our space which um, feel really personal. And so what I would say, one, is that we need to learn to depersonalize all of these things that we are being inundated with and we are being um, sort of constantly bugged by. Um, and we need to you know, understand that just because the phone is the place where we take selfies and text message others, 
It's not the place where some random person tweeting or posting is attacking us for posting their thoughts. You know, that sort of conflation of, of personhood into the virtual device is very scary. And so we should stop also scrutinizing people like, like corporate entities because at the end of the day, we're all just like individuals. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Another thing is I noticed because I've just been observing younger, um, you know, like Zoomers and Gen Z and stuff, most of them have uh, multiple accounts. They might have one private account and then they have multiple like sort of, oh, sorry, they might have one public account and they might have multiple private accounts because they feel the exhaustion of constantly being scrutinized publicly and they see that there's something really wrong with that. And so that's like kind of hopeful in a way too. Mm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, but you can't like say like, oh, this is the answer because this shit is going to march on whether you or me like it or not. Like, you know, this yeah. is, you know, the attention economy in a lot of ways is the economy now. Like, you know, people use this shit and companies use this stuff for their financial, you know, like, like livelihood. Um, yeah. Like yeah. the more people who listen to our conversation, like there's some more likely you are to get an advertiser or, you know, I don't know. I don't, actually don't know how it works. um it's interesting what you said about zoomers i have like limited experience with zoomers from working with them honestly but i i do feel like the ones that i know seem to have more appreciation for non-digital the non-digital world i mean i I, we give young people so much shit about not reading but the people i see reading the most tend to be like teenagers and in their early 20s maybe because they're you know right out of school and school encourages you to read paper books but um, do you feel like there's a backlash to sort of the digital online world from that generation? Yeah, I think there is on some level, but I don't think it'll be substantial enough to really like, you know, downgrade it in any real way. You know, capitalism always finds a way to, you know, reform itself to win. But um, I do feel like, you know, just look at Facebook, right? Like if you think about Facebook 10 years ago, it probably was at the center of a lot of people's online usage. And I would say in the last five years, that has probably dwindled, at least uh, as far as I'm concerned myself and you know, people I know. I don't really know, you know the fervency of people who used to use that, they don't really use that anymore, in my, in my observation. I don't know statistically. So I think you know, most apps will probably go in that direction. And then you know, younger people will, will develop newer apps. Like, you know, just look at the difference between Facebook, like the older millennial app, and Snapchat, where your messages disappear and it's all really private, which is a younger millennial app. And you yeah. can kind of see a trend in that way. But I, I'm not like some Spengali, and ultimately I'm just a filmmaker, right? So like I obviously yeah. think about all these things um, because th- it's what I'm concerned about in terms of this story and some of my other films. But, um, and I also think about it just as a filmmaker because what screens are people looking at? What do they choose to devote their time as sort of storytelling consumers too. And I do think it's our responsibility as filmmakers to be sensitive to that. And if we wanna survive, you know, because the, the, the primacy that film once held in the culture, like maybe, you know, in 1995, let's say when I was first getting into movies as like a fucking 10 year old or whatever, um, is, is no longer there. Films are, you can no longer assume anyone has seen any new film because (laughs) there's all this other shit out there that, you know, competes for their attention, not just streaming television, but also TikTok and Instagram and all this other stuff. 
So it's our responsibility, one, to try to, you know, make cinema exciting and relevant to audiences and to just really make sure you're telling like a fun story because I, I, I can't imagine how much goodwill from curious film goers is expended on just boring dog shit, which I'm not going to call out by title, but there are so many films you see, especially like, you know, obviously tentpole films are just like formulaic, but even independent films that have some, you know, following or some sort of popularity are just usually quite unrewarding when you compare it to like, <laughs> you know, The Sopranos or watching a really fun TikTok or watching yeah. a bunch of really fun TikToks. So I think it is our responsibility if we want to continue this medium and if we want it to, to matter to make movies that, you know, are saying things, but are also just fun to watch and people can can not feel stupid like like i don't want people sitting there and like overthinking it and like what am i missing or should i be thinking harder to enjoy this like that's just not the sort of cinema i like and you know 